going to read next from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11 for our uh, scripture reading uh, before our sermon lesson today. So Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. That'll be on the screen, but you have a moment there if you want to pull that up in your own Bible. Now from God's word we read. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside his flesh, in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So last Sunday, we heard from Reverend Joe Green. I'm going to see where I put this. Good. Uh, he's our, our new full-time Baptist hospital chaplain in Halifax, and he uh, explained a little bit about what, uh, what he does, and that was a good opportunity to, to see him up front. But we kind of skipped a week out of this series that we're now we're coming back to, uh, which was called Explain Yourself. And it was about working through some beliefs uh, that are core to Christians, and even specifically for Baptists, in order to understand and perhaps even be able to explain them, as well as reflecting on how we can live accordingly. And so far in this series, we studied the concept of the lordship of Jesus, the belief that Jesus is the boss for Christians individually and for the church. He gets the last word always. But how do we know what he wants? Primarily the Bible. And that last message in the series two weeks ago was where we looked at what it means to consider the Bible as God's word, to hold it as the only sufficient authority for our belief and practice. And we explored as well some reasons why the Bible can be trusted in this. So, Jesus is Lord. The Bible is our authority for knowing how to follow him. That's so far so good. But then we run into this question of how do we know what the Bible means? How do we know what things actually please God? Because we see some of the difficulties here. In the last two messages in the series, I also mentioned this thing called the State of Theology Survey, which took a look at some things that are true, and in my case, I focused on some things that were true of the most active church-going respondents to this survey, which was done in the United States. And it found a couple things. First of all, that people had tremendous respect for the trustworthiness and authority of the Bible, which is great. But for another thing, they did not have a very strong grasp of what the Bible says about Jesus or about quite a few other things. And I don't know if Canadian churchgoers have the same respect for the Bible's authority or not, but I I don't have any hope that their theological knowledge is better. A strong belief in the authority of Scripture is good, 
But if we don't combine that with a mature understanding of scriptures and a real desire to imitate Jesus, well, then the results can actually be pretty ugly. One danger in this is manipulation, where unqualified or false teachers convince people, well, that almost anything is supported by the Bible and approved by God. And this is a problem the Bible itself addresses quite a bit, especially in Paul's letters to the various churches. Because, I mean, it makes sense. When the faith was so new, there were many false teachers in the early church saying all kinds of things because they hadn't really established what their, what their boundaries were and what the core things were as the, the way that we have after 2,000 years. And so Paul's charge to his readers, uh, particularly in uh, this a passage from Ephesians I'll read in a moment, he said, look, we need to come together as the body of Christ, the church, where people can serve each other as God has called them to and help each other. And he says, oh, hang on, let me shrink this on. There we go. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And he goes on and says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And that's a passage that needs the spotlight shone on it more and more in our age today of, of Q and other conspiracy theories and, and celebrity-driven Christianity that's kind of all over the place. To say that it's, it's not enough to acknowledge God and respect the Bible. Followers of Jesus want to live in a way that actually pleases Jesus, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so when the church fails to produce disciples like this, then it leads to Christians who either don't find a lot of value in their faith and easily walk away from it, or those whose faith can become corrupted and turned into something that does not resemble Jesus. So how do we know what is pleasing to God? Seriously, how? Right? How do you decide what is or isn't pleasing to God? The Bible is supposed to be our primary guide, but we all know that there are a huge range of views about what the Bible says about many things. You can pick any subject and find people who will give biblical arguments for or against it, or sometimes five or six different views about it. And we also read these Bibles of ours through the lens of our own intuition about right and wrong and our own sense of God's leading. So who gets to decide what is pleasing to God and consistent with the Bible's teaching? And for Baptists, at least, the answer is that you do, that I do, that individual Christians do. Or as Peter and the other apostles once declared to the Jewish religious leaders who wanted them to stop preaching about Jesus, they said, we must obey God rather than human beings. There is a wonderful freedom and an important responsibility that goes with this. And that is what we'll explore a little further, starting with a look at today's main passage, also from the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 was the, the first two verses in our reading today. It starts off with this message to non-Jewish Christians. And you're going to wonder for a little bit why this part is important to the overall message, but it gets weaved together with the rest toward the end. And so we, this is written to the Christians in and around the city of Ephesus, and he's speaking to the, the Gentiles, so the non-Jews, and saying, remember when you were outsiders, right? 
Remember when the, the Jewish believers who were physically circumcised looked down on you when they called you uncircumcised, not just as a fact, but as an insult, right? They didn't just think of you as different. They thought of you as lesser. There was a, a common prayer among some Jewish religious teachers in Jesus' day which said, oh God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile. And, you know, that thing seems harsh, but in not, in maybe not in so many words, but I think it's easy to pray a prayer like that today and say, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like these people, not like those people. Gentiles, even if they sought to practice Jewish religion, even if they sought God in the way that seemed best to them as far as they could, they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They're not included in God's covenant promises to the Jewish people. They weren't part of the future glory and blessing that was promised to Israel. They didn't have the hope that the Jewish people did of this Messiah who would come for them. And so verse 12 says that they were without hope and without God in the world. And Paul is really casting judgment on the empty philosophies and traditions that were just not able to bring them into the knowledge of God as things were. And so we see that in verse 12 and 13. But that changed. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so that social and spiritual separation of Jews and Gentiles has no place in the church. Jesus' death and resurrection made the very idea obsolete. As far as the risen Christ is concerned, there is one humanity, not a bunch of different groups who have different relationships to God. And so however much we might divide or disadvantage or destroy one another as humans, we are one people made in the image of God, loved by God so much that Jesus laid down his life to redeem us. And so it does not matter where we come from or what language we speak or our former religious background or the color of our skin. And when people who may be otherwise very different are united by their shared faith in Jesus, it is possible for them to live at peace because of Christ. And so we have that, that's too much text for you to read easily, but it says that for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And by the way, the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, that's not just a metaphor. In the temple in Jerusalem, there was a literal wall that separated the outer courts where the Gentiles were allowed to go from the inner areas of the temple where only the Jews were allowed to go. And if you ventured where you weren't supposed to, you could be put to death. And so with that much discrimination and hostility, how could these two groups of people come together to share the same Christian churches built on mutual love and service to each other? only through the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection changed things. And it could allow people, first of all, to be reconciled to God by putting their faith in Jesus. And then in this new life that they had gained, allow them to be reconciled to each other. And that, I'm sure, was messy and difficult at times. It wasn't as neat and clean as we perhaps would like or anyone would like. But overall, it is what happened. And that is a miracle. It is a miracle that the early church did not split up into Jewish and Gentile factions and become two different versions of Christianity. They found a way to live and worship and love together. 
Because if Jesus can reconcile a person to God and break the power of sin over their life, then Jesus can certainly reconcile people to each other. If people can't be reconciled to each other, have they been reconciled to God? When Jesus invites us to believe in him and become a disciple, he's also inviting us into a community with a diverse group of people with whom we can have peace through his power. And so our passage today says that he came and he preached peace to those who were far away. That's the Gentiles who did not have this knowledge of God or involvement in the covenant with Israel. And he preached peace to those who were near, to the Jews who were expecting God's anointed. And regardless of their background or choices up to that point, by professing faith in Jesus, each person gained access to the Father by one spirit. And that's the big second part that we'll look at. They Each person gained access to the Father by one Spirit, it says. And that, of course, would be the Holy Spirit, who the Bible tells us joins us to Christ, offers us comfort, gives us encouragement, empowers people with strength and unity and wisdom, and equips them with talents and spiritual gifts, and assists them in praying and even in understanding Scripture. John 14, 26, for instance, Jesus taught his disciples that the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Many people also in reading the gospel see great significance in what happened at the moment that Jesus died on the cross. That was when the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And that was the curtain that separated the innermost room of the temple, the holy of holies, where only priests could go from everything else. And so being torn in two was a powerful symbol of what had changed, that people did not need some human actor or institution to act as a mediator between them and God anymore. Faith in Jesus, which brings the Holy Spirit into our lives, gives us direct access to God. Through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. And we've got the whole Trinity in that one verse, by the way. For through Jesus, we have access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. So there are these two things that I've drawn out of this passage that are more related than maybe they seem. We've got the reconciliation and peace between different groups of people following Jesus, and we have the direct access that all of them have to the Father through the Holy Spirit, not through a temple or a priesthood or a pastor or a church, but through the Spirit who is present in the life of every disciple of Jesus. And this access through the Holy Spirit is one of the reasons for a distinctive Baptist belief that we call soul liberty. And soul liberty is about that direct connection that each believer has to God. It's this individual access to God which brings us freedom. The Holy Spirit in each believer helps us to discern what God desires, what the Bible is telling us. And we're supposed to use this liberty to settle on the beliefs and practices that We are convinced are pleasing to God. Each person should be allowed to decide on these things to the satisfaction of their conscience. Because Jesus was never coercive. Jesus preached, he challenged people, but he never tried to force anyone to believe. He told his disciples to knock the dust off their feet and keep on moving if a town they came to did not want to hear the gospel. He questioned the motivations of the crowds following him even to weed out those who We're not there for the right spiritual reasons. He wasn't looking for followers who didn't want to follow him. The Canadian Baptists of Atlantic Canada's uh, Baptist distinctives 
document says that Baptists believe that no group has the right to force others to believe or worship as it does. God has given all people freedom of choice, and as such, Baptists have championed the cause of religious liberty. It's also historically why Baptists have been staunch advocates for the separation of church and state. So that's, that's the spiritual freedom part. Now the reconciliation and peace part comes into this, because if you and I have soul liberty, if we have the freedom to interpret and discern what we think pleases God to the satisfaction of our consciences, well then, of course, we also have an obligation to respect that other Christians have that freedom too. There's a, a famous expression that has been developed and repeated many times within the church that says, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Because right? we do seek to agree on essentials, on core beliefs that we don't stray from. If we don't have boundaries as the church, then the church doesn't stand for anything in particular anymore. And there are, these are many of the things that the early Christian creeds tried to establish as they worked out what are our essentials about who God is and how to respond to what Jesus has done. But from that foundation, we seek to respect each other's freedom to differ on non-essential things, recognizing that the church's diverse, diversity of cultures and languages and experiences and perspectives is going to lead to a variety of views uh, and opinions all by people who are trying to discern in good faith what pleases God. And in all things, charity reminds us that there are many cases where it's better not to say that I am right and you are wrong, but to say that I find this to be the most compelling answer or to say this is what makes the most sense to me. And then be willing to listen to what makes sense to somebody else. And we see a major example of this in the, the early church in Acts chapter 15. Because they were going through this big debate about, again, this Jewish and Gentile Christianity thing. How much do the Gentiles have to follow the Jewish law to be Christians was the question. Because there were people going around saying that they had to adopt all of it. They essentially had to become Jews first to become Christians. And the Jewish Christian leadership at the, of the church in Jerusalem debated that at length and prayed about that. And they came up with the answer, which was, actually, they don't have to do all that much. They wrote a, a letter to the Gentile believers where they apologized for anyone who had tried to force them into a legalistic version of faith. And they said, here's what you need to do. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. That was, that was it. That was the request made to maintain unity among these very different groups of people who came from very different backgrounds and who had been so hostile to one another. Now, of course, I wish all this was as simple in practice as it is in theory. Getting Christians, first of all, to agree on what is essential and not essential is its own challenge. Figuring out when beliefs have diverged enough that well, we can still call each other brothers and sisters, but we probably can't operate in the same local church or even denomination. That can be hard and at times painful. I mean, I don't know of any church, for example, that both practices infant baptism and believer's baptism. You generally don't have both. You pick one. Churches can empower women to preach and teach or restrict them from those things, but you certainly can't do both at the same time. We have to choose. Just like... You have to choose what activity to prioritize in living out your Christian life. You're going to knock on doors and evangelize? You're going to run a food bank? Are you going to be involved in political action? We all have to choose what model we look to for our Christian character. 
you know, someone who's kind of winsomely engaging the culture or aggressively confronting it? Who is a, you know, the example that we look to for how we build our faith? We have to choose. That's the thing about soul liberty. That's the thing about this freedom to understand and live out your faith in the way that you believe is pleasing to God. Because freedom is good. No one should be forced or coerced in matters of faith and belief. Galatians 5.1 puts it this way. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. But freedom comes with responsibilities. Nobody can tell you exactly how you should be as a disciple of Jesus. You're not forced into a specific mold. But if you don't take responsibility for how to mature it as a, as a disciple of Jesus, well, then we end up right back in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Instead of atta attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, you will be back to an infant, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. If you build no foundation, then what you have could get knocked over or pushed around very easily. We have to choose God helping us. And the good news is that, of course, you don't have to choose alone, nor should you. I mean, that would be very unwise, or dare I say wildly arrogant, to try to make all this up as you go, just ignoring 2,000 years of church history and all the smart and faithful thinkers and the valuable writings and the excellent teachers ministering today and the wealth of resources out there, all of which that can supplement the role of our local church and prayer and our own Bible to help disciple us. We should be shaped by wise teachers and Christ-like examples and the imperfect church community that God calls on us to love and serve. Because Now, because soul liberty starts with the individual, I, I can't stand here and tell each person what they need to do to make the most of that freedom and live in order to please God. That is the Holy Spirit's job, which is good, because I'm not qualified to know you perfectly and exactly what you should do. But I will point you to three areas today of spiritual life. And I think it's helpful to recognize these three categories as we see, you know, what does it mean for me maybe to grow and attain more of this fullness of, you know, Christ-like uh, character. And so I'm going to talk about the three orthos now, all right? And uh, ortho, it just means right. That's all it means. And there's three orthos that Christians should care about, three things that we want to get right in order to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so ortho number one is probably the one you've heard before. It's orthodoxy. And that's just right belief. That's all that one means. And so if we don't have a solid basis uh, in what our beliefs are and in reliable belief, then we're not going to get a lot else right along the way, most likely. There are some things that we need to know and be able to express about God and the saving work of Jesus and the nature of God's love and grace and the purpose of the church, these are things that are awfully important. Reliable church attendance helps with these, but studying the Bible, learning from good teachers outside of an hour on a Sunday morning, that's still important to gain a foundation of right belief. And there are so many ways today to go deeper if you want to go deeper. You can read up on theology or biblical studies or learn from accomplished scholars which can strengthen faith and give people insights to, to share with others. There, the number of books and articles and, and podcasts is approaching infinite, infinity at this point, and many of them are excellent, so it's, it's so easy to access. 
right? Orthodoxy. Second ortho, orthopraxy. May not have heard of this one so much, but that one is right action. So it's good to have an understanding of orthodox Christian belief, but if your actions are disconnected from those beliefs, then one might rightly ask, what good are those beliefs anyway? Right actions for Christians include things like caring for the poor, like advocating for justice, like supporting local church with your gifts and talents, like telling people about your faith. Sometimes these are carried out through involvement in a local church. Sometimes they're carried out in separate areas of life. But these and other right actions are, they're signs of authenticity of our faith. They're a part of maturing as followers of Jesus, as we follow in his example of making himself a servant to others. And the third one you may not have heard of, you know, even Microsoft Word hadn't heard of the third one. It was underlining it the whole time for me. So it's orthopathy, okay? So this is the, this is the fanciest of the orthos, orthopathy, and it means right passions. Uh, and this is where the feelings and the emotions come in. It's the goal of having the posture of Christ, having the disposition of Jesus is another way of putting it. And so you, because you can have right belief, that God wants you to, say, take care of the poor. And you can undertake a right action, like saying, I'm going to volunteer at my local food bank. I'm going to get involved. But you could still do that in a way that is arrogant or legalistic or insensitive and end up doing more harm than good. Having just two of the orthos does not guarantee that you're doing a good job or that you're doing it right. And you can stand up for truth in this world without humility or kindness, which undermines the gospel message that you're claiming to promote. You know, we, we studied seven virtues this summer. And here's then a bonus quote about virtue from a, a church uh, history figure named Isaac the Syrian. And he said this, he said that a heart that is wise in what it hopes for and whose actions are, are accomplished by right intention, that that's what virtue is. It's not just doing the right thing, but doing it with a heart that is wise and what it hopes for and whose actions are accomplished by a right intention. Right? Those are three orthos. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. Getting our beliefs right, getting our actions right, getting our passions right. And that's a great opportunity for a personal checkup to look at ourselves and say, Maybe where am I a bit more ortho? Maybe where am I not quite as right as I could or should be? Maybe I have a good basis for belief, but I don't have a lot of ways in my life right now that I'm acting on that. Maybe I am very committed to a lot of good actions, but I know my inner life is a bit of a mess. I, I'm not resembling Jesus in the way I should. Maybe I'm not loving those around me all that well, let alone my enemies, the way Jesus asks of me. Maybe you're just starting from square one, and there is nothing wrong with that at all. But what are you going to do with this gift of freedom, this soul liberty? Because you have access to God through the Holy Spirit. You're joined to the church through your new life in Christ. And so you have this amazing opportunity to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of God with right beliefs, right actions, and right passions. And I worry sometimes when I say it that way, attain the whole measure of the fullness of God. That just sounds like it's a lot of work, mostly. Uh, instead of saying that that's not just the goal, it's also the reward. Because to be someone who attains to the whole measure of the fullness of God, well, what kind of person is that? That's a person who is like Jesus, who can have peace in the hardest circumstances, who just exudes 
joy. There's a, a famous preacher who, who, who says you know, that Jesus was the happiest man who ever lived. He had to have been. Because when you're united with God in that way, that's how you end up. You know, to, to know right from wrong and to be able to do right. That's what comes with the whole measure of the fullness of God. And so it's, it's not just this mountain you have to keep climbing you know, in order to get that check mark or get God's approval or feel like you're for sure going to heaven. It is itself the reward. Freedom is a wonderful thing, but only if we do something good with it. And that's a problem we see today, that many people's definition of freedom or liberty is, I get to do what I want. But that's not what I mean, and that's not what the Bible means. Freedom means being able to pursue what is good. It means nobody stops you from finding your way to what is right. Right beliefs, right actions, right passions. So in Christ, we are free. So what are we going to do with that freedom? Let's pray about that for a moment. Holy Spirit, I thank you that, that you are a better minister than me and that you know the hearts here perfectly. You know exactly where they stand with you and where their faith could stand to take a step. A new step into faith, a step into maturity of belief by better understanding who you are and what you've done. A step into action to make, uh, make real those beliefs by, by putting them into practice in some way that shows others the authenticity of that faith. Or a, a new step into working through those passions, uh, developing that, that posture of Christ so that those beliefs and the actions that they lead to are carried out in a way that truly is good and resembles you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take hold and not give up on any one of us. God, on our worst days, on the days that we forget about you, on the days that we don't care about you, on the days we're so busy that we, we just have to get those things done and that's all we have in us. Holy Spirit, don't leave us. Don't give up on us. Don't forget about us. And help us to remember you. Help us to, to remember how good you are and what it means to know you. Help us to look and find those ways that we can, we can express what we believe through our action. And give us moments of pause to remember who you are and to, to desire to be like your son Jesus. To carry a little bit of his posture, his disposition into a, a weary and fearful and sometimes angry world. So Holy Spirit, go with us this week. Go with us from here and nag and tug and encourage and uh, entice us toward this beautiful thing your word calls the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Amen.